Welcome to the Ampere Computing Podcast. My name is Mahesh Madhav, and we are here in Ampere Studios in Portland, Oregon. Our building is settled in the downtown waterfront overlooking the historic Fremont Bridge. And today, I have the privilege of speaking with Atik Bajwa. Atik is one of the founders of Ampere Computing. He is an executive vice president of engineering and the chief architect of the EMAG server product line. Welcome, Atik. We're glad to have you here. Thanks. Glad to be here, Mahesh. So I, I want to jump in and talk a little bit about the the start of Ampere Computing and how you got involved. I know for many years you had a, a strong career at Intel Corporation and you retired a few years ago. Can you talk us through your retirement phase in your life? Talk, talk us through how we got to the point of the advent of Ampere Computing. Sure. Yeah, happy to. Uh, I think, as you mentioned, I had a fairly full and uh, uh, very nice career at Intel. I spent about 30 years there. Last about uh, 10 of those, I was in various uh, forms of running the kind of the definition architecture of of Intel's microprocessing computing products and across clients and servers and all other segments. And then it got to a point where I basically felt that I had uh, accomplished as much as I could at Intel, and I decided to take uh, retirement and go off and actually enjoy life for a bit after a pretty, as you can imagine, uh, Intel is uh, a hectic and demanding job. So I, I took a retirement and uh, spent about a year, about, about six months, I would say, detoxing, just relaxing and visiting friends and all that. And then after that, I got to participate with a nonprofit I was working on. I was actually became a volunteer executive director to run that operation that was focused on childhood cancer research. So I was doing that, and then at, at some point, uh, Renee, as you might know, was the president of Intel. And Renee she had, James. Renee James, yeah. yeah. And she had uh, retired from Intel as well. She had left Intel as well about, I don't know, about maybe a year earlier than me. And she had engaged with a Carlyle Group. They had asked her to come on and be kind of one of their executives as they look at various investment opportunities. As she was doing that, she came to the conclusion that there was a great opportunity, in the, especially in the server space, to come up with an alternative, both a alternative architecture implementation as well as an alternative business model and alternative engagement model with the customers. And so she had been looking around for an opportunity to create some sort of a business like that. And so in the about a year after I had retired, I was uh, happily tooling around and volunteering at my, my nonprofit. And I was approached by her uh, and by Rohit Vidvans, who is the, and one of the other founders, and they said, hey, we're looking at this this opportunity. Can you come and give us your thoughts and consult with us for a bit? So I figured I could carve out, you know, three or four hours a week for about three or four m- months, and then I could go back to being a nice retired guy. And I had a lot of fun uh, working with them, evaluating various options. And at the end, I gave my uh, my result, my uh, my conclusions to them, I should say. And um, I said, hey, you know, this is what I think this is a good direction you're going. Go for it. Go forth and conquer. Have fun. And uh, Renee, as, as those of you who have worked with her, uh, can be a very persuasive person and is uh, quite uh, inspiring in a lot of ways. And so she basically said to me, uh, no, no, what do you mean? See you later. Come on, come on board and, and help us uh, do that. And and I thought long and hard because I had really had a full career and I was ready to enjoy time with my wife and and spend time doing other things. 
But the conclusion that my wife actually pointed me to was that I, I look, was having a lot of fun working with the folks there and on the subjects that I was working on. So she, she encouraged me to actually say, hey, go, go and enjoy yourself here. And that's really what I'm doing is I'm enjoying myself. I think, you know, uh, for me at this phase, coming out of retirement was not about trying to make a name for myself or trying to, you know, make money or anything of that sort. You know, my, my main thing was I want to work with people that I really enjoy, who are really smart, but are also really fun to be around and innovative and creative. And I want to be around people, I want to be working on problems that are technically tough and interesting and challenging in a place where I, uh, there is an opportunity to change something. Um, you know, disruption is used, but well, let's just call it change. It's a, change something for the better. And that there's a, actually a chance of success, not a sure thing. As we all know in this, the market that we're going after, it's, there, are a lot of in, there are some entrenched incumbents and some pretty strong players. So it's not a done deal or a slam dunk, but it's a challenging and fun and doable thing that we're embarked on. So that's really why I'm in. You had you had mentioned uh, the the team is trying to change things for the better. Can can you describe a little bit deeper about the motivations for what kind of change? Uh, you mentioned the kind of people that you work with, but also the the caliber and the training and the the mentorship opportunities. Yeah, so I think there there are, there are a few questions you have embedded in there. One is you know what are we trying to do, and then who are we trying to do it with? What sort of uh, the what, what, what is the, the team we're assembling and how it's structured? So, so in terms of what we're trying to accomplish, I mean, I think, and why it matters, I think general purpose computing is, is certainly has, has been, had a very good run and it's still having a very good run. But as we look at it, it's clear that there are segments of the markets, of the computing market. For example, you know, fairly obvious is that the, the the needs of a phone versus a server are what they're trying to do and the scale that they're trying to do it is different. There's a lot of commonality. I'm not trying to say that you know everything needs to be special purpose or but there's a fair amount of segment specific optimizations one can do. And I think that's with some of the the players that are entrenched out there, what you see is that they have to serve a large market. And when you're trying to serve a large market, you can't optimize for particular segments. It's not because the people there are not smart or driven or every bit as creative, but they have different constraints. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to assemble a team, back to your question about team, that is frankly composed of some pretty rock star folks who like to work together and are creative and all of that. And, and we're trying to focus ourselves on catering to particular segments of the market. And specifically, we're, say, we're focused today on the hyperscalers and the edge market in the data center. That's really what we're focused on. So we're trying to create products that are really optimized for those segments. You know, as far as what you talked about as a team, right, we've, we've got a, a set of very, 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 I would call them rock stars. I, I you know, as I mentioned, I, I didn't come out of retirement to work with folks that weren't going to challenge me and inspire me. So all of the folks that I work with are folks that, I, I feel inspired by, and uh, they drive me to greater heights. So those folks are from you know a number of companies. You know we have folks from Qualcomm, we have folks from Intel, we have folks from AMD, and of course the Genesis story for uh, Ampere, as you know, is that we, as part of that formation, we acquired the assets and the team, uh, which include the team and the IP of uh, Applied Micro. The, the folks that I've I get to work with, 
I say this and it's completely, completely true. You can talk, check with my wife. Every day I leave uh, home I, with, a, with a smile on my face because I'm going to work with some of the smartest, most fun people to work with. Smart engineers love working with other smart engineers. Exactly. Right. And as you were in retirement, I think you realized engineers got to engineer. <laughs> right. And that, that can also you know make you realize that you have that passion in your heart that has to come and bubble up again. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I'll credit my wife for making that, uh, that uh, realization, making me come to that realization. That really, that's what sparks the joy in me is is doing the engineering. So. Spouses are, are good like that. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Renee has mentioned in the past about having a kind of a technical ladder, a ladder of expertise and intuition, and the recognition that at every place you are in your career. There needs to be not only someone who is above you that you can look look up to, but folks junior to you looking up to you, and uh, you have a responsibility to to perform that mentorship. It's like the the circle of of architecture life. Yeah. Can you can you speak to that a little bit and how how our company here is taking that to heart? Yeah, I think uh, you're very right. Uh, you know, it is um, it is just a a general. I think uh, truth in life that we are we are what we are because not because just because of ourselves but because there were those before us who um, gave us wisdom, experience, chances, um, advice, all of that stuff, right? Um, and so, and we have a, a a duty to them as much as to the to the cosmos to actually pass that along and, and do the same for others. So I think that's uh, that's kind of uh, uh, a philosophy that we have here. I think uh, the folks that we, um, you know, certainly the leadership team believe, believes that, and the, the founders believe that. You mentioned Renee. I think the same is true for uh, Rohit or Kai, who's our CFO, uh, or myself. Um, we, we've brought on folks onto the team who kind of uh, live that, right? Uh, and, and and my by the way my take it is mentorship doesn't happen just you know if you will down the organization if you draw an org tree from that standpoint a lot of mentorship that I've personally experienced has been up the organization where smart technical folks right um, one of the things that I used to value a lot in my team uh, in previous lives and still value is folks who are smart who can educate up the uh, organization. To Renee or me or Rohit and, and or, or Kai, and help us understand what what the opportunities are, right, um, and what's possible. So that's very much part of the um, the fabric of who we are. Is is that the, the selection of who we bring in are folks who naturally feel that that um, drive, not just to do stuff themselves, but to uh, help raise the next generation of leaders, if you will. That's a good way to put it. You can say that we're building the next generation company as well. Exactly, exactly. I think that's certainly been one of the things that we, um, uh, I think is, if you do a similar podcast with, with uh, Renee and kind of ask her about uh, what led her to want to do this, one of the things she, I think she'll mention is that her one of her mentors, one of her key mentors was Andy Grove. And Andy Grove in the last few uh, months of his life was basically telling her, you have to go do this for the sake of our industry and for the sake of technology in the US. You have to create 
a new company, a new kind of company uh, that perpetuates that that cycle of uh, generational learning and generational growth. Anyway, so that I think it's it's very much uh, part of part of our genesis story from Renee and part of what drives all of us. We wanted to build this company because we wanted to have the opportunity to create uh, not just products, but a culture and a and an organism, uh, an organization. Ethos. Right, right, exactly. Having a great organization, a great company, it's not uh, all we need. Talking about previous companies in this marketplace, we, we've noticed that there are many, many prior upstart ARM server companies that didn't quite make it. What can we learn from those companies and, and what makes it the right time for Ampere to start yeah. as, a, as a ARM server manufacturer? That is a great question. And that's a question that um, I think all of us think about and certainly you know, we think about, we've thought about, and we think this is a good time. But you know, our customers also ask these questions and everybody asks this. It's a very reasonable question to ask. I think, I think the way I look at it is the following. If you look at the ARM server stuff really sort of, I think, started in the early 2010, 12 kind of range, right? Um, and Applied Micro, actually, the, the team that we um, were lucky enough to bring on board, they were the kind of the, the uh, pioneers in some ways. They had the first, some, of the, some, some of the first ARM-based server products. Um, and I, I think, obviously, they didn't make it. You can look at other exits. Um, you know, um, you know, most recent one being Qualcomm, right, has exited. But you know, other players, other people like Samsung have played, etc. And so the question I think is very reasonable: Why, you know, why is this just not a fool's errand, right? Why, why are we? So I think that there's a, a number of things that are different, and I think in my mind it's the following. The first part of it is, um, you know, I'll just start with the technology piece. The ARM architecture in the early 2000s was a um, mobile and embedded optimized architecture. It didn't really have the, the architectural framework to build server class machines. So the, uh, with ARM v8, that substantially changed. You know, 64-bit, a much more modern uh, architecture, much more of the capabilities that you would expect in a data center class machine. Uh, and then. ARM hasn't rested on those laurels. You know, the, the ARM ecosystem has moved from V8 to V8.1 on several generations, adding a lot of those capabilities that you need in servers. So the architecture has moved. In addition to the architecture moving, the implementations have moved. The early ARM implementations were, they were deemed by the data center folks as wimpy, right? They were not poor implementations, they were just not they weren't good enough for what these folks wanted. They wanted higher performance, more cores, all of that sort of stuff. So, so you have the early implementations uh, in the early years. There were not enough cores. The cores themselves were not that uh, performant. And then you had the issue that the, of the process differential. So the third piece of this technology puzzle was the process. And Intel with the Xeon product line had a, you know, had an architecture. It had performant implementations that were shared with the the client, so very high IPC, and they had a process advantage, which at that time was you know three three and a half years worth of process advantage. And you're talking about manufacturing. I, thank you very much. Yeah, silicon manufacturing process. <clears throat> so that all of those made made it hard to come up with a um, a microprocessor or computing building block that was really 
going to meet the needs of the data center. But on top of that was the fact that this software ecosystem wasn't there, right? And the software ecosystem, we've been in the industry long enough, we know that it's great to have great implementations, but you got to have the software ecosystem run that on that. Applications, system software, uh, tools to optimize and stuff, right? So, so all, none of that stuff was really existent on ARM. And I think that has come a long way uh, over the last uh, decade or so. So what I would say is that, you know, essentially for the, uh, the, the early folks who were there, they blazed a trail. Unfortunately, they got burned on that ta- trail, many of them. They ran out of money. They ran out of commitment from if they were part of larger companies. They, they ran out of the, the corporate um, incentive to go after it. I think the market opportunity is very much there. And so, you know, I talked about the technology pieces and I talked about the software. Uh, by the way, there's also the hardware platform piece, which has come a long way. The platform interfaces of the SOCs have moved from being, you know, kind of, I'll call them retrograde on the memory interfaces, retrograde on the I.O. interfaces, to being now up on the latest memory and, and I.O. interfaces, speed-wise, fan-out-wise, all of that. But the other part is that you know the platforms that we're building that are, can be built with ARM systems are not quite good. The other part of it, though, is that is there demand? Does somebody want you, you build something great and you can actually build a great? Why would anybody want it? And I think that that's where part of our focus is on hyperscalers and edge, because that's where the inherent legacy or incumbency, incumbency benefit that Intel has or or x86 has, because AMD also benefits from that. That is less prevalent, right? If you look at, if you go to an enterprise, enterprise data centers run legacy software, which has a lot of requirements in terms of being able to run old stacks, software stacks. Well, it's very hard to break in with a new architecture. Whereas if you look at where we're going after, these are the hyperscalers, they tend to own their own software stacks. They tend to be open source based. They have the technical capability proven over by many of these folks. Uh, many of these folks have ported their software stacks over to ARM, as, as, and some of them are quite public about it, I think, uh, that they've ported their software stacks to ARM. So that ecosystem is much more friendly and amenable uh, to being able to come in with a new architecture. What I'm hearing is that these cloud service providers, since they own their OS and their entire full stack, they're able to differentiate in a way that doesn't require a particular ISA underneath. Right. And now that open source software can run on pretty much any ISA, that paves the way for other architectures to unseat the incumbent. Exactly. I think you, you got it exactly right. It, it, it makes it a much more, it's not still not a fully level playing field because the current state of these uh, cloud service providers is that they have x86 systems and software built on those. So it doesn't completely level the playing field, but it makes it much more level, especially if they have other incentives to want to move to a different architecture. And so that's where we want to come in is, and that's where we are coming in, is we're trying to come in with products that are more optimized for their needs, that that give them a benefit, either a, you know, it could be a TCO benefit, it could be a customization benefit where they can build something more easily. You know, our, one of our big um, philosophies is, is we want to be open. You know, some of the other incumbents tend to want to build walled gardens and come up with proprietary interfaces and they they want to integrate and make it their own, which reduces both choice and the pace of innovation that various cloud service providers 
and other customers want to go at. So that's really, I think, we want to be open and allow our customers to innovate at the pace that they want. So just a few years ago, the industry didn't have this level of software compatibility. And fast forward, we are now standing on a great foundation that allows us to create those new differentiators. Right. How will Ampere then create that open system architecture? Yeah, actually, if I could, I want to go back a little bit and talk a little bit about something I didn't talk about, which I think is important because having this opportunity and having the environment is great. But I think you had asked the earlier question, which is, hey, lots of other folks have fallen by. Why will you succeed? Well, I think one of the most important things that I was kind of building up to is that we are the ARM ecosystem of silicon suppliers for the data center really was at is at the cusp of delivering products that are leadership as opposed to just being low-end or kind of budget solutions. And I think one of the examples of that is actually Qualcomm. The, the elephant in the room from your question is, hey, Qualcomm, very well-funded company. They've got you know uh, lots of money in the bank. They just exited the ARM server business. So what, what are you smoking that you think you're going to be able to uh, succeed there? And I think the answer is, I think the Qualcomm data center team, QDT, I think they were called, they were a bunch of very smart folks. They had a they had done two generations of products that had, you know, first generation was probably a little challenge, second one was, you know, getting getting there. And the third generation of product that they were on was really going to be uh, pretty disruptive. Uh, and I think uh, would have very firmly established ARM as the leader in performance and capability. They exited the business not because there wasn't market interest, not because they didn't have a good product. They exited because of, I'll call it geopolitical or other extra extracurricular, I don't know the right word, but you know what I mean. It's, outside it's Outside issues, right? So they had certain cost targets that they had promised to their shareholders as a result of some hostile takeover stuff. And those, they decided that the best way to achieve them was to cut this business that they were on the verge, in my opinion, of uh, of making a very successful entree into. So I, I'm, I'm sad because, you know, a set of my friends were there and they'd worked, they had labored long to bring some great stuff to, to market and that, that got taken away. But from a, a, a from an Ampere standpoint, it's a very good thing because they would have been a, a very formidable uh, competitor with good products. I think we, our product really, uh, and our product line really, I think is is taking on that mantle of leadership, right? We are building products in essentially that are as good or better. And certainly our roadmap, we have a roadmap that we're working on that is quite aggressive and will deliver leadership over generations. So I guess what I wanted to just come back to your point about, hey, why has things not been successful? I think we were, the industry was on the verge of being successful, or the ARM ecosystem was on the verge of being uh, successful. The Qualcomm exit, while good for Ampere, has caused some doubt in some folks. But on the other hand, then Amazon came along, as you know, and just announced their A1 instance, which is based on their own internally developed silicon that they had done for some other segment. So it's it, it's a graviton, I think is what they're calling it. It's a, you know, on the one hand, they're not using our silicon, so we, we wish they would. We believe our silicon, our first generation is better than what they're offering, and our second generation will... Uh, we believe, blow things out of the water. But the fact that they're in the ecosystem, they're establishing the software 
momentum is, I think, key. And I think what you will see is that other folks in the in the industry will be starting to look at, hey, uh, how do we get into this uh, play? So anyway. As you were speaking, a analogy came to my mind. It seems like if we consider a the gridiron football field, it seems as if these startup companies uh, that came before us started uh, you know, on their own 20-yard line and moved the ball forward, right? Calzita, C-Micro, Qualcomm, HP, AMD, and, and the, the ball is now on, it seems like it's on the 10-yard line, 10 yards away from getting that touchdown, and Qualcomm has left the ball in the field for the next company to try to get that touchdown, and there's four downs remaining. Right. The ball has been advanced very far, and we have the opportunity to pick it up and try to score. You're absolutely right, and I think you know that's evident in the amount of engagement and conversations and actual engineering work that folks at our customer base are doing on ARM and on our silicon. All of the these these large cloud service providers have you know lots of different projects they can be working on, but a number of them are spending tens to triple-digit number of their own people working on ARM-based, in many cases, R-silicon and the software that goes with it and bringing platforms up. And so I think uh, you're very right. Uh, you know, I think not only are we on the 10-yard line, but I think we've got the, the, the favorable winds and uh, momentum uh, is very strong. A few of us went to the ARM TechCon and we're, we were manning the booth and we were able to see you know, many different customers come by, curious enthusiasts come by and talk talk to us about ARM servers. Some of them had very interesting questions on our ability to innovate. And, and they said, well, you know, ARM kind of gives you an ISA that you have to build. And how can you differentiate and innovate on top of what the other guy is doing, who also has an ARM license? What, what would you say to those folks? I think innovation, obviously, the, the 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 cheap and easy answer for me to say would be, well, architecture, the ISA is important, but then you have to, the implementation is very important, right? So how do you implement it? What sort of, which parts of the ISA do you optimize? So um, do you optimize for performance on these workloads, which are, you know, your customers care about, or it's the other workloads that a different set of customers will? For, and as an example, right, we are, are not, taking HPC as one of our focus segments. So there are trade-offs we, we are making which favor a different class of workloads that we think we can make those trade-offs because we're not optimizing for HPC. Uh, another thing is just when you're building something, you know, we have our team is, we've assembled a pretty darn good team as we were talking about earlier, uh, who has a lot of experience in building high-performance microarchitectures and and the circuits. It's going to be about how do you use the the, the silicon process, how do you use the, the circuits on top of that, and how do you build a microarchitecture based on that. So there's a lot of room. If you look at just x86, for example, hey, you have an x86 architecture, how can Intel be a leader? Well, obviously Intel has been a leader for a long time. They've been EMD for a long time. There are other folks like Cyrix. You can innovate. My point is that architecture is a piece, but you can build implementations that are much more tuned to your particular market. So that's one thing, and and we have a believe we believe the right team for that. The other thing I think is a lot of it is about optimizing software optimization as well. And so an effort that we have, a big emphasis we have, is on making sure that software is optimized 
for ARM, but also for our, our implementations. So it's a co-optimization between the implementation and the software. So, so that's another piece uh, that I think. The third part is that as an ARM architecture licensee, we're not just this, this person who gets you know, dumped a bunch of specs and you just got to go implement them. We, we have a collaborative relationship with, with ARM where obviously we, we adhere to the ARM spec that exists, but we also influence and work with them, partner with them to evolve that instruction set. So I think that's sort of uh, the many ways that uh, one can innovate. I, I think I'm, I'm not worried, frankly, about the fact that we're on an ARM ISA and uh, having lots of other folks to compete with. The folks who are in the ARM business, some of them, each of us is going after slightly different optimization points. You had mentioned how Intel was at the forefront of performance for, for many years. It's very evident that Denard scaling and you know, Moore's law has started to slow down, and Intel has shared publicly uh, this information too. So that that kind of levels the playing field with regards to the manufacturing and process. One of the analogies that I use is if we consider the silicon substrate a canvas, the architects and designers are the artists that figure out what to paint on that canvas. And it, it used to be that this canvas just kept getting larger and larger. Now that that canvas perhaps is uh, staying the same size for significant generation, it leads to something that you had mentioned. Uh, you know, what is that special sauce? What what can one team of engineers do to paint on that canvas? Last year, the Turing Award was awarded to Hennessy and Patterson, two stalwarts of our industry. And they spent their time reflecting upon this as well and declared that we are entering into a golden age of computer architecture, uh, one where uh, it really does matter uh, how you architect and design, how you use the transistors that are given to you, because perhaps you're not going to get any more mm-hmm. for a long time. What are we doing in the space to differentiate ourselves and make sure that we're using good use of the transistors that we have? Yeah, well, some of the things we're doing, I'm not going to talk about in a, in a public <laughs> uh, uh, podcast, as you, as you might imagine, right? But I think there are probably two or three different things that I would say on that. One is that when you hit come up against a wall or a, a change in the landscape, if you will, you don't have to just stop, right? You have to look at that landscape and say, okay, well, what are the opportunities that still exist? And how can I perhaps change the landscape a little bit, reimagine the, the landscape? I'm not taking as a given that we're going to not be able to have more transistors to do stuff with. We'll find some other mechanisms to make sure we can still mine whatever goodness our process uh, folks, uh, the silicon manufacturing folks give. I had a conversation with some of the folks at one of the big manufacturers of semiconductor manufacturing equipment. I talked to their kind of leadership team and my message to them was, don't you wimp out, don't you give up because we're relying on you. Yes, there are challenges and the landscape may be different, but you're innovative. Go figure out how to push that landscape, that uh, the the push the ball forward to continue your analogy from earlier. So, so I think I, I'm I'm not giving up on the fact that our silicon process brethren will not do something amazing as well. But there are other uh, vectors that we can use, which will still allow us. And again, I can't say too much more about it here, but. 
we have some ideas that will allow us to continue to both deliver more performance and deliver more functionality and do that economically. That's one part of it. The other part of it is that, as you mentioned, I think the, the impetus now shifts from our Silicon brethren who were you know, essentially giving us a better and better canvas or a bigger and bigger canvas every... Uh, it wasn't just bigger, by the way. It was, it's better too, right? Uh, in many ways, whether it was performance or power or... And, and that, as those uh, avenues are not yielding as much benefit, it, it, the impetus or the, or the onus, I should say, not impetus, the onus shifts to architects to come up with creative new things. And so I think you'll find the conversations that we're having, and I think it's not just our company, other places are having it, about how to how, how to utilize the transistors more intelligently for the particular workloads. One of the inevitable things that, that will happen is you will have to look at how you use your transistors, the, 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 the number that you have, which hopefully will continue growing and being better, but you'll have to look at utilizing them for the specific goals you're trying to accomplish and not trying to do Swiss Army knife kind of products, I think, will be less valuable going forward. So specialization, you know, you can think of it as special purpose compute elements, et cetera. I think that will happen more. In some ways, that's not really, that's a trend that's already been existent. So I think that'll continue. But I think that architects certainly have the onus on them now to use a resource that is that is not growing at the same rate as before. There's a, a, a term that Rene likes to use, uh, and it's called disciplined innovation. I, I really like this term because it captures that there is progress, but there's an understanding that it can't be in any willy-nilly direction. It has to be driven by the technology, by customer demand, by time to market. Can you speak a little bit about what disciplined innovation means to you? I think one of the interesting paradoxes is that you probably heard the term innovation can't be scheduled. And so, and we all know that innovation comes from unlikely sources. It comes from uh, some harebrained idea you could come up with in a shower or some uh, some amazing spark that's caused by having a conversation over coffee with someone. And some of it is crazy, wild, wild-ass ideas that, you know, first time other people hear, they say, what are you on? And I think the 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 thing that you're talking about is very important, which is you have to give people the the leeway to be crazy, to be creative. But the the discipline comes from the standpoint of understanding what is the goal you're trying to get to, being very clear about what what are, what is it, what matters, what matters to you as a as a business, what matters to you as a as a vendor into a particular set of customers, what matters to your customers. Once you understand those, you can come back to and say, well, these are the axes on which I want some sort of innovation to happen. So innovation that kind of strays away from that, you have to actually say, that's a great idea, but I don't know yet. And I think it's important to say yet, because sometimes later on, those same ideas can become valuable once you figure out how to channel them. But it's important to say, hey, I've got this set of ideas. I'm going to now do a selection so that aligns, disciplined, it's aligned to where I'm going to want to go. 
I don't know who coined this term. I, I, I've heard it attributed to Andy Grove. And since I think the world of that guy, I'm going to attribute it to him. But, you know, this, this he used to say, let chaos reign, then reign in chaos. Right? I think that's what discipline innovation is. You let folks come up with crazy, wild-ass ideas, let them sort of experiment with them, and then you rein it in and you say, well, how does this get us down the road? How is this going to make, make help us progress down the path we want to go down? And so that's, a, to me, what discipline innovation means. You clearly articulate where you want to go. You give that challenge to the team, let them come up with ideas, and then come back and say, okay, is this getting us along the way? So that's that's my sort of uh, internalization of uh, discipline innovation. Great. Since we're nearing the end of our time, I'm going to have one final question. And we're going to try to turn back to something personal. In In our... In our current woke culture, we're breaking down gender norms, and I'd like to, to ask a little bit about your family. Now, you've had a very successful career, and you also have two great children, and uh, you you share that responsibility with your spouse. I'd like to, to ask, you know, how, how do you do it? How do you have it all? <laughs> well, um, I think, the uh, in my mind, the, the, the real secret to that is I married up. Um, I think that's the secret. I think that's a finding a partner who is, um, you know, simpatico with you, is is aligned with you on values, and is uh, you you are mutually supportive with. Uh, that's the, the the bulk of the battle is won right there, right? You 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 uh, really. I attribute whatever I have to obviously to my parents, and you know what the upbringing they gave me, but. My my partner, my wife, has been an incredible, incredibly supportive, and I would, in my estimation, she's borne more of the weight of everything. She's been, um, you know, an amazing partner and spouse. She's been an amazing mother to her children through all sorts of challenges, etc. She's she's really been the stalwart. But in in her own right, she was, you know, very very successful physician. You know, every time I meet one of her colleagues, they it's hard to shut them up about how great she is. So, so I think it's it's really um, you know having that partnership is critical. Um, I've supported her. I think she supported me more personally. But that's my opinion. The other part I think is perhaps inherent in your question is, well, how do you have it all? Well, you really don't have it all. You make trade-offs, and I think the trade-offs you make are informed by what your values are. And you have, if you have the same values, you can make those trade-offs more intelligently. We've op- we've optimized around uh, family first, and then careers, um, and, uh, you know, each other's careers. And so um, we've op- we've optimized away, for example, career trajectories. Both of our career trajectories could have been different, maybe faster, higher, different. I don't know. Uh, had we made different tra- trade-offs, but we feel very good about the trade-offs we've made. Uh, our children are who we want them to be. We've enabled them to be be who they are. I guess, really, it's a, it's a complicated question. First of all, you, you, you made me vax uh, <laughs> um, uh, emotional about my, my, my spouse, uh, my wife, who's, who's an amazing part of my story. But I think the other part of it is really having your, your own value system and your priorities straight, and then just staying true to them. And knowing that you're going to make trade-offs, you, you cannot be, you cannot do everything. Uh, although sometimes my wife makes me think that she does do everything. 
But anyway, so I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, thank you. You know, those, those are words to live by, and uh, you know, many of us here look up to you as as a a role model and also as a great person. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and thank you for being delusional <laughs> and believing that. Thank you, Atik Bajwa, for coming here for our first Ampere podcast. And thanks to Travis Lazar for producing. My name is Mahesh Madhav, and we're signing off now. Thanks. Thanks. That was fun.